Got time for a quick story about writing a story, writing an autobiography. Sometimes you have assistance if you write an autobiography. Sometimes you write multiple books about your career, and then sometimes it's a free flow. And you can tell that the writing came directly from the author. This is definitely the case with Steve Hackett, the guitarist in Genesis in the early to mid-1970s, has had an extensive, varied solo career. And on July 24th of 2020, he released his autobiography, A Genesis in My Bed. And you can definitely hear the voice of Steve Hackett through the words on the pages. And so I have Steve Hackett once again to chat with, had uh, a chat with him back in 2019 in the wake of his most recent studio album, At the Edge of Light, when he was getting ready to tour with his with his recreation of Selling England by the Pound by Genesis and his solo album Spectral Mornings, which at the time was celebrating its 40th anniversary. Well, once again, talking to Steve Hackett about the autobiography, A Genesis in My Bed. And start with the, with the line about the Local Government Examinations Board boss who talked about the the, the what varied monotony of every job. You would talk about how this is a monotonous yeah. job. And then he says, yeah, well, the key is to find varied monotony. Would you yeah. describe your career as having achieved a varied monotony? No, I would say that I'd stepped outside that. You know, I think that uh, here was a guy who was the equivalent of a civil, very sweet guy, was the head honcho. Um, but after six months of doing this job where I was basically an office dog's body and I was stuck on filing endless things uh, to the point where there was no longer any room in the various filing cabinets, and I started dreaming about it. You know, at night, this is my first job when I'm 16 years old and dreaming about um, being an eternal filing clerk. And I thought, I've got to leave. This is it. My dreams are telling me that this is, is something that I can't face anymore. And I went to see the head honcho and I said, oh, you know, after six months, I'm sorry, I don't think I could do this job. And he said, well, I tell you what, you know, I agree with you. He said that if you feel it's not for you, get the hell out of it. You know, he said, but he said all jobs are monotonous. The, the great secret to find is varied monotony. Varied monotony. That was that was the phrase. And I well, at that time, um, being a professional musician was a distant dream. And there was still a dream there, but, you know, between the ages of 16 and 21, when I got to eventually be a professional musician, uh, there was a lot of stuff in between, a lot of jobs that he was absolutely right. You know, they were monotonous. Um, they didn't require much intelligence. You just had to toe the line and um, and got get on with it. I guess we, we've all done those sort of early jobs where we're just an extension of the machine or we're someone's slave or whatever it happens to be. But I always felt what I should do was to um, keep the creative uh, burning. So I used to write little short stories and lyrics and, and various things. Uh, when I couldn't get a guitar, I still had the idea that at some point um, 
I'll put this thing to uh, to good use. You know, you've got to try and protect your sanity when you when you realise that you're doing mind-numbing jobs. I think it's important for all of us to still have a dream of whatever it is, whatever that that thing is that you want to be that you feel unfulfilled with. So um, I think I think it's. Uh, it's something that the only one, the only person who can really disqualify you is yourself. You, you have to um, get hold of this internal invalidator that tells you you can't do something and get him to shut up. Um, so we, all of us, when we are working at full potential, have had to work the internal invalidator, which tells us we can't do it, whatever it might be, acting, stagecraft, playing, whatever it is, it's never too late. It's never too late to be um, functioning at your your full potential. And as um, uh, you know, the thing that, that Jung said, you know, it's about this process of individuation where you go through perhaps a whole lifetime, and at the end, perhaps the acorn gets to be an oak tree. <laughs> you talk about music being described in pictorial terms and the visual nature of music, and also. The tie between the personal and the mythological, you mentioned that, and especially with regard to the lyricism from Nursery Crime. Um, how is it possible to describe the visual nature of your music going back 45 years? Um, well, I think the pictures change, but I think, I think essentially music attempts to tell some kind of story, and it may be some sort of personal thing. I don't know. I mean, in my young life, I listened to a lot of blues, and um, that's where so many sonic developments happened within the world of guitar players. Um, it's the area where guitars learn to scream and sustain and cry and do all of those things that we we think of as you know the natural progression or the, or the birthright of of rock and roll. But before that, there was blues, and it was uh, people. Um, the blues men of old who were struggling to make a make a living before the Brits rediscovered them, perhaps, and um, revalidated their work. But, um, you know, I'm thinking of Muddy Waters, Sonny Boy Williamson, the great blues men, uh, Howlin' Wolf. Some of them were great singers, some were great guitar players, some were fabulous harmonica players. But, you know, somehow they were the forerunners of, of the... The rock and roll stars of today. <laughs> you know, that's it. It's uh, it's all right for a nineteen-year-old to stand there with perfect blonde hair and um, you know cut a dash and all that, but somehow you know there's been the suffering of generations before that. And um, I'm I'm aware of that. It, it, very much you know to 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 my purpose it is talking about um, Peter Green who just passed on recently a few days ago, and I, I used to go and see him. In London, when I was 16 years old, going to gigs for the first time and um, and thinking he was absolutely brilliant. And so um, I was just listening a few seconds ago to um, John Mayall's version of So Many Roads, the Otis Rush classic, and the young Peter Green's guitar playing on that. And it's it's young, it's angry, it's 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 brash and it's flash. But there's something about it. You can tell that there's real feel in there. And um, I think that's why so many of us love that. I know I had this conversation with, with Brian May when we were working together at one point and he brought in some records and he said, this is just to remind us of what we're all about. 
And it was like listening to my own record collection. It was exactly the same tracks, the same guitarists. It was it was Eric Clapton playing The Key to Love again with John Mayall. And it was the young Jeff Beck playing The Nazar Blue with the Yardbirds. And, uh, you know, this this was it. We, we shared this heritage of, of this stuff. And, um, and at the end of the day, I thought, yeah, well, we're all the same person, really. This is what moves us. This is what drives rock and roll. This is its roots. But more than that, it's its fire. It's its spirit as well. The nightmares you write of, especially earlier on. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm taken on a journey through all of the dreams you write about in the book, but especially early on, those nightmares. And then you write, you bought your first guitar and that helped alleviate the nightmares. How so? Um. Well, I think if you're talking about nightmares, you know, for a child, um, I remember at one point, um, I may have been about eight years old, uh, just having returned from Canada, and I fell sick, and I was literally able to see sound waves coming from for me, and it was the most terrifying thing in the world, and I could hear them as well, this sort of charge of static electricity as these things snapped, and these these sort of um, these kind of golden waves that were coming for me, and th this might sound completely mad, but you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm not on here. I'm saying this is how it was, and um, somehow music was always this refuge for everything else. You know, the idea of the perfect world. I was talking to a journalist the other night who was saying he was talking about writing books and having written an autobiography. You know, he said he said yes, I write books and. Somebody motivate, motivated him to write and said, it's the only time you're ever going to get a chance to play God is if you're writing fiction. You invent your characters and they do whatever it is at your behest. All of this. Now, I find music was always like that. You know, it was it was a refuge. It was something that uh, nobody graded me for. Uh, it was the antithesis of school. I mean, we've all had crazy guys who were teaching us and 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 uh, in england the, the post-war scene was one of a number of you know practically psychotic schoolmasters you know when i was eight years old i remember um this guy tore up my painting in front of me in front of the whole class saying it was mad and um uh you know that that put me off for many years and even the subjects that i was very enthusiastic about um suddenly um somebody teaching me at school might steam into me about my work. And um, I very early on that there was something about the guitar that was wonderful. And um, there was a sense of adventure and anger within it. And I thought, nobody is ever going to grade me on this. I will always be my own teacher with this. Nobody is going to be. I'm not going to have an internal invalidator or external. Nobody is going to qualify me or disqualify me. And I will just get on with it at my own speed, my own pace. Uh, in a way, that's what music was for me. There is almost an impressionistic description of the nature of England, the bleak English landscape, as you referred to at one point, all of the references to Pimlico and the concrete, and then the, just the, the, the darkness of your, of your earliest days in, that, in, that, in that, uh, the, the south part of London. But then there's also so much, so much almost, I mean, Again, impressionistic or some the, the beauty of that country and the sunbathed houses you refer to 
And then that, that's just your writing. And, of course, there's also all of the lyricism of, of your career. What do you find about your homeland that makes it, at least to me as an American, that makes it such a vivid place to describe almost in a fantasaical way compared to, I don't know, like the United States of America? Well, um, you have to understand I love both places, and I spent uh, many years in America, not not in not in one go. You have to realize, you know, it's it's in chunks of months at a time, sometimes three months away. With Genesis, then we'd have a couple of weeks off, then we'd be back there. Six months in America of of, of one year, and 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 in recent times, I've, I spent a lot of time there. I mean, America is a great place. America is a great country, um, for so many reasons. And 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 I, I I'm always going to stress the positives. Because, you know, we have to remember what what we have at home. You know, and uh, you know we we have a free country. Um, we, we I, I I was very aware in, in the very early days of, of America the fact that they accepted us as Genesis and we were a quintessentially English band, and they probably had no idea what the hell we were singing about and all the rest. But that didn't really matter. There was something there was something there. Maybe it was exotic for them. And I think England always looked to America, you know, right from the 1950s onwards. Uh, there was this idea that America was there first with rock and roll, of course. all. Um, but England had something else. England, um, and I guess it's a romantic view of it. You know, um, I remember talking to one guy in Miami years and years ago, taxi driver, and he said, Oh, I guess you get, you know, Bobby's riding around on bicycles and there's a lot of fog and it's all that. And I get the feeling he was talking about the England of Jack the Ripper, you know, Victorian times. And um, and of course, yes, England was all of that. It is no longer that, you know, is this um, hub of te technology. We have all the old buildings. Yes, we have the architecture and, and we have the English villages. And many Americans fall in love with that. I mean, I was in Norfolk, the original Norfolk, where Nelson comes from. And um, and I really hadn't been out of London for many months. And, and lockdown was just easing. And we went to see family. And I was sitting out this outside in this place. It's just an English tea room where they make wonderful cakes. And I bumped into a few old friends. We were sitting there in the sun saying, this is what it's all about. You know, it's all about taking tea having cake in this very old-fashioned place called Hayden, which was in Norfolk. And uh, it's a place where they shot a film called The Go-Between, uh, which Joseph Losey was the director of. And if you ever get to see it, it's the very young Julie Christie and Alan Bates. And it's it's a bit like the class war being played out. And um, uh, it's it's a romantic story, but it's, it's, it's a very lovely novel and it's a very lovely film. And there I was sitting there in the midst of history with this huge village green, People were just breezing in and out, and everyone had time for each other. So that kind of England, where people have time for each other, it's it's as if there's a, there's a whole country that, compared to America, none of this can really be considered to be urban. You know, if 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 New York is the metropolis found in super Superman uh, um, uh, comics and movies, um, London, by comparison, even though it's this huge city, is like a village by comparison, you know, it's built up, but not to that degree. I don't know how to describe England. It's just, it's the place that I grew up. 
it was bomb sites, it was devastated by the war. Um, I grew up in this wreck of a place and I thought, why can't they build houses properly? What I hadn't realized was that, of course, there'd been all this economic downturn and all this damage and we were still on rations and all this kind of stuff. So um, I think it went, rationing went on until 1955. So five years into my young life and my mother was still having to show her ration book, you know, you could only get a certain amount of food. And so um, I think that America didn't have that. Not that America didn't pay a price, of course, becoming involved in the Second World War, which nobody really wanted to do. But um, of course, America has always been this, always been the special relationship. And I'm not just talking about what presidents and prime ministers say to each other. It is a very special relationship and it's it's always going to be in my heart. You mentioned at, at one point that classical music is always going to be a part of your soul. And you have these distinct tracks of different type of music that you re, that you return to here and there. What or can you say that there is a musical individual core of your soul or core of your musical soul, however you want to put it? How would you describe that? Or is it truly at its center multifaceted? Uh, well, I think it has to be uh, multifaceted because um, I can applaud one particular genre of music and say, I listen to nothing but this because it is it is eternally true. These eternal truths, these genres of music, whether it's classical music, whether it's listening to Bach or Ravel's Bolero or Mario Lanza singing Puccini, has so many other things, or the work of Chopin, which is basically a man alone with the piano, you know, the, the old relationship. Um, uh, so one comes to respect that. I mean, I've been working on something even today, which I think I'm practically finished, which owes so much to Prokofiev and the Russians and, and all of that. But at the same time, the same day, I'm listening to a track that's originally written by Otis Rush, covered by John Mayle, and on guitar, it's Peter Green, as I was saying earlier. And um, they're all absolutes. You know, it's music is a pantheon of gods. If you allow yourself to be drawn, then you'll you'll find that there'll be something in country music that you love, something in soul music, something in Tamla Motown, something in blues, classical music. Um, you'll be worship, worshipping a lot of gods. You'll have a lot of roots in different directions. And if you just listen to one kind of thing, then um, you're not really opening up to the rest of it. You know, um, um, it's it's a lovely thing. You know, music can set aside prejudice and you can you can go multinational straight away with this and it'll take you right outside earthly realms and and take you off somewhere somewhere else. I mean, uh, Jimi Hendrix was not merely an, a, a son of America, a, a, a black blues man. I mean, he's a. He's a guy who's going to take you into outer space with his with his guitar work and um, almost like a reanimated zombie coming back from beyond the grave and telling you what it's like. I, I think, you know, the whole subscription to the myth of Hendrix was that as soon as he burst onto our scenes, we knew he was very different. And uh, my late great pal, Chris Squire, said one night he and his young band called Yes were playing at the Marquee and they couldn't work out why in the front row there were all four Beatles sitting there. And they thought, we've really made it, until he started talking to the support act, who 
sometime later realized with Jimi Hendrix, they were there to see Hendrix. They weren't there to see him, but there you are. I mean, I got to work with Chris and he was a great character and wonderful. I got to see Jimi Hendrix several times live and I feel privileged for having having done so. But but there you are. I mean, what what's in your record collection? If you're a guy of a certain age, then you'll know exactly what Hendrix was all about when he burst on onto the scene. And, and it wasn't about having a, a coordinated light show or anything else. I mean, he was the show. He was the music. He moved in a certain way, and it looked as if he was the embodiment of all of those things, which are essentially improvised music with uh, a, a minimum of form, but maximum of spirit. Quite honestly, I could I have a ton more questions I could get to, and alas, we're out of time, but there is so much to read in this book that I would recommend anyone who's listened to this right now. Go ahead and read more. It's a good read. It's an informative read. It's an honest read. I, I can tell it comes right from you. A Genesis in my bed, and I understand in another interview you've been working on other music, so we got more to hear coming down the road, and I hopefully maybe got another chance to chat with you about future creations going down the road. Well, thank you. I'd love to talk about future things. It's, you know, I mean, lockdown has been uh, difficult for all of us, but I've been doing tons of recording, lots of different things and different styles, and um, many things are nearing fruition, and they'll be out there soon. So uh, it's great to talk. And hopefully to talk in future. And I look forward to being back. It's going to be April. I'll be back in the States next year doing shows, all those things that have been deferred. Uh, many more dates have been put in uh, across the world. So stay safe. Love to everybody. And uh, thank you for having uh, invited me on your show and having a great chat. You're thank quite you. welcome. As you write, one door closes, another opens. Take care, Steve, and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you later. All the best. You as well. Bye-bye. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you. Steve Hackett. Always an honor to get a chance to talk to him. Very, very insightful. And we're looking forward to that new music to come. More to come to add to the career of Steve Hackett. If you want to get the book, if you want to learn more about what he's doing, you can go to his website, hackettsongs.com. H-A-C-K-E-T-T songs.com. Hackettsongs.com. Of course, he's on social media, on YouTube. Over the past few months, he's been doing little vignettes talking about his works over the decades, all of which uh, give information that you may not have known about his work. Definitely worth a watch. And they're short, too, so... You can watch a whole lot and learn a whole lot more about his music in addition to what you'll read in A Genesis in My Bed. This has been the latest edition of Got Time for a Quick Story. Thanks, as always, to my employer, Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Um, you can always listen to these interviews and other interviews that we do, with my coworker John Murphy as well, at greatesthits981.com. Click on Interviews, and you can listen to those interviews. You can also subscribe to this podcast can uh, find it via Apple, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn. Subscribe to it so you know when new episodes arrive, and also rate it as well, preferably higher. Rate it however you so desire. Got time for a quick story? I'm Luke Anthony.